Hey, welcome to the show today, and I am thankful that you could join me on this one. Last week contained a few really enjoyable conversations that I'm going to be sharing with you over the next few weeks. Today, I'm sharing the conversation I had with a gentleman by the name of David Tripe. What I'm talking to him about, I believe, is incredibly important. The existing financial system is like a sick parent. One day, we all die. That's right. And it's Monday, too. But one day, chances are, if you have parents, they'll be dead before you die. So their passing away may involve a lot of anxiety, a lot of extra admin, tidying things up, and perhaps some new tensions in the family exist that didn't exist before. There's higher emotions. Maybe there's even a massive financial windfall or a liability. Now on YouTube, you can generally judge the quality of the video that you watch by how alarmist and how certain or dogmatic the thumbnail titles sound. And I know I'm taking a risk reputationally here for saying this, but for the record, the current financial system will one day pass away. Either the currency will go to zero, or the network of institutions that own the plumbing will break beyond repair. In a perfect storm, both the currency and the banks will fail at once. Hey, it's not clickbait if the fish is already bitten, right? Now, you're, of course, only allowed to quote me on that if I'm right. But the problem with saying that is, is obvious, right? When will this happen? It's fine to say something negative like that. Everything, you know, probably happens once in our lives. But when will it happen? And that's the issue with saying things like this. Although it looks closer than ever before, in reality, there's plenty of steam left in the status quo. Over a century ago, war, political maneuvering, and secret meetings among bankers laid the groundwork for the banking system on which we now rely on. And many of us are completely oblivious around how it all works. Over time, though, a culture of management within the banking system, rather than constant improvement, has left us with something that may not be fit for purpose for where we're going, where everything is digital and new networks are already being built which are better. The global financial crisis, the GFC, left deep scars that have yet to be healed. Recent bank failures testify of this sickness that is still there. And these bank failures are like the equivalent of an 80-year-old having a fall. Although we have plenty of new regulations, the stay of executions only postponed until the next trigger comes across a niche finger. David Tripe, a professor of banking studies with Massey University, is my guest today. He's a smart guy, super easy to talk with, and I really enjoyed this chat. Hey, make sure that you are subscribed to the Everyday Investor newsletter. Link is in the show notes. I am releasing some of these episodes on YouTube in advance of the audio, so that's where you want to be if you want to get early content. All right, let's get started. Hope you enjoy the show. You're listening into the Everyday Investor Podcast, passive investing, property investment, managed funds, and crypto. If you're an everyday person wanting to build new wealth for the new world that you're heading into, then this podcast is for you. I'm Darcy Angaro, your host. I'm a qualified financial advisor, but I'm still learning how to invest better and teach others how to do the same. I talk with guests and cover a range of topics designed to get you to think for yourself here. But please keep in mind, this can't be considered financial advice. Be sure to do your own research here and seek qualified advice of your own before making investment decisions. If you want more information, check out the show notes in your podcast player and make sure that you've subscribed to YouTube also. Then follow The Everyday Investor on all social media channels. 
The NZ Everyday Investor podcast receives support from the following partners. Easy Crypto, the safe and easy way to buy and sell crypto in New Zealand. Guerrilla Technology, increasing business success through innovative and strategic IT solutions. Ungaro & Co. Financial Advice, financial advice for everyday people building everyday wealth. Hope you enjoy the show. Let's get started. All right, I'm joined now with David Tripe, Professor of Banking Studies at the School of Economics and Finance at Massey University. How are you, David? Good, thanks, Darcy. Today, I'd, I just want to, I guess, have a bit of a summary conversation around the banking crisis and lift up the bonnet a little bit around banks in New Zealand and what should we definitely not be worried about, but what should we be cautiously on guard against? So we'll just maybe start with a real simple sort of explanation, perhaps. Like if you could maybe talk to me as if I was 10, just in case my 10-year-old listens to this, talk to me as if I was 10 around what happened with the old three S's, the Silvergate, SVB, and Signature Bank in, in the US. What was the primary cause of that? The one we know the most about is SVB. Um, that, well, it was the, the biggest of them, so it's got more of the story for that sort of reason. So the problem with SVB was that they were successful at raising deposits in the San Francisco, in the in the Bay Bay Area in particular. Lots of tech. They they had a good rapport with the tech community. They got deposits from the tech sector accordingly. That was good because sometimes getting deposits is a challenging thing for banks. In fact, what happened was that they were they were good at getting deposits. They weren't necessarily so good at making loans. Rather than making loans, they went out and purchased securities, which is reasonable in general terms because that means that you're getting an income stream out the other side. Now, the unfortunate thing was was that they bought securities which had more or less a fixed interest rate in most cases. While interest rates were low, that was a nice profitable activity. As interest rates rose, that ceased to be nearly as profitable an activity. That meant that they were potentially facing a shortfall because the value of those securities that they'd purchased fell as interest rates rose. And that's because the stream of cash flows that those securities generated, um, they remained the same. But as interest rates rose, you would expect that sort of series of cash flows had less of a value in total present value terms because there were alternatives which were rather higher yielding. So that had that meant that those securities effectively declined in value to the extent that the value of the assets came to be less than the value of the deposit liabilities. That's a great explanation. It makes sense. So when interest rates go up, the value of those securities went down. And I guess Correct. what made it probably extra nasty was the fact that uh, people were drawing their cash out. So the ability yes. for these banks to be able yes. to do that meant that they were forced into cashing things which had gone down in value, which amplified the problem. Is that Would that be correct as well? That's a correct summary of things. And some people who had had a look at the financial statements identified that there seemed to be some weakness. They got their money out and told other people that they were getting their money out so that made other people mm. think that they should be getting their money out as well it's mm. very much a classic case of a bank run yeah 
And there's a really good movie with Jimmy Stewart in it that I'd totally recommend if uh, people want to get a, a good picture of that one. Yeah. Um, okay. So if, if we kind of just think about what would normally happen, the bank goes bust, the bank collapses, and I have some money inside the bank. What, yep. what happens? What's the normal scenario there? What happens is that sooner or later, effectively, a freeze is applied to the bank. And then it's rather like a corporate liquidation. The assets get cashed up and paid out to the people who've got money owing to them out the other side. So that, in the banking case, could be a very long process. And in New Zealand, we had some experience of that in the case of the DFC when it went in 1989. Um, so that's a good lesson for how these sorts of processes occur. So we're kind of like unsecured creditors. Is that, is that, is that yeah. pretty much correct? Yeah, you're unsecured creditors. And a further thing with banks, unless there is some intervention of some sort, it can take a very long time for the cash to be freed up. So what the US authorities have done is they've actually stepped in and um, paid out and sold the good bits of the bank to, to a bank from North Carolina. First citizens, that, that's what it's called, I think. There we go. First yeah. yeah. And so with the Federal Deposit Insurance uh, Corporation, I guess, is that what the C stands for? Yep. FDIC? FDIC, yes, yes. What, that was going to insure people anyway up to $250,000. Yeah. And yep. so initially it thought, well, yep, some people are going to be protected with that, but anything over two fifty. In the end, long story short, everybody yep. was made whole. Yeah. And, yep. and in fact, a further interesting aspect of SVB is that they had much more in the way of large deposits and less in the way, relatively less in the way of small deposits than would be usual for a bank of that size. Um, right. So they had only a relatively small proportion of their deposits were actually subject to insurance. So that meant that the consequences of the failure were potentially going to be quite extensive. So because it was deemed to be, I guess, systemic, like a, like a really important bank. It wasn't as systemic as some. And there are some rules in the US about what's systemic and what isn't systemic. There mm -hmm. were also some legislative changes implemented in... Um, the, the, the late 2010s, which reduced the range of banks that were subject to the sort of checks that they might have been. So that back in 2018 or whenever, SV wasn't as big a bank as it was by the end of 2022. Hmm. So like, and you're probably alluding to the Dodd-Frank Act, is that correct? Yep. So what happened was the Dodd-Frank Act initially applied an extra set of controls to banks with assets of over 50 billion. Um, in 2018, that 50 billion limit was lifted. So at 50 billion, it had truly got something like 40 to 50 banks. Once that limit got lifted, it cut down the number of banks affected to about 10 to 15. And so, like I was going to ask, actually ask you on, uh, around that, and, and it kind of ties into the regulation piece, which is not just topical in the banking space, but also in the crypto space that I follow quite closely as well, just trying to understand what regulation should look like, how much of it, and how much is too much. And yeah. with the with the Dodd-Frank Act, I remember that like there was, a, I, I've got this picture of Donald Trump kind of making some changes to the Dodd-Frank Act, which would help a lot of small to medium-sized banks out, presumably because it's lowering the regulatory burden. Yeah. Um, it was asked, asked of me not that long ago whether or not that contributed towards us. I didn't have a good answer for it at the time, of course, but I would like to ask you that question. Like, would you say that the changes made to the Dodd-Frank Act 
did that contribute or accelerate the banking collapse that we recently okay. saw? It looks as if they they reduced the extent of oversight over banks such as SVB. Mm -hmm. That meant that they um, didn't have the extent, for example, of interest rate risk controls that um, they might have had if they'd been more closely supervised. And the lack of control of interest rate risk was, of course, what actually tipped them over. Interesting. Okay. So if um, if we just come come to New Zealand now, and we don't have FDIC insurance or anything like that yet, but my understanding is that in 2024, we, we should have something. There's something in Parliament now, which is going to give us insurance to 100,000. Yes. Okay. Do you feel like that's kind of like in light of what's happened in the US with how regulators stepped in and basically made everybody whole anyway, do you think that's kind of a redundant exercise? Is that really just about giving us confidence when really we don't need it? No, I don't think it's a redundant exercise. I think back to what was happening during the global financial crisis. And in the second half of 2008, um, there was quite a lot of concern about bank soundness. People didn't really understand what was going on. They didn't understand that their deposits were not protected. There was a tendency in some circles, at least, to, to panic. The advantage of deposit insurance is that it's it doesn't generally protect everybody, but it does protect most deposits. And I think the figures that I've seen for the um, $100,000 deposit limit in New Zealand suggests that that covers something of something like 93% of depositors. That means if you don't have 100%, if you only have 7% of, de of depositors trying to get their money out, it's much easier to manage than having 100% of depositors trying to get their money out. So it stops the panic by people who have perhaps less understanding. The people who have more understanding are going to be the people who have more money on deposit with the bank, as a general rule. If you've got more money with the bank, it's reasonable to expect that you'll be doing some investigation of yourself and taking some care. Um, if you've just got a transaction account and if you don't have financial training, it may be difficult for you to assess what the soundness of your bank is. Okay. And how does it work in practice? Like, So if we did have something like insurance here in New Zealand for our deposits, who pays for the premiums on that insurance? Is that effectively going to be a tax that retail banks have to carry? My view has always been that it should be um, a tax on retail banks regardless. Precisely, we haven't got any ideas yet as to how the tax is going to be assessed, but it's going to be a small amount. It's maybe going to be a couple of cents for, or a cent or two for every $100 of deposits sort of thing. is isn't a large sum. It won't necessarily accumulate a large sum. But the reason why you should charge some sort of premium is that you then impose some obligations. Well, well you make the banks recognize that by taking deposits, they are taking risk and creating risk. If you mm -hmm. don't, and if you go to the principle of getting the money from somewhere else after the event, there's no constraint on bank expansion, which is what causes the risk in the first place. It's, it's a basic measure. There's some insurance there. It'll probably wind up ineffectively, effectively being paid by depositors who lose a fraction of a cent in interest for every dollar they deposit.
but I don't think I don't think that's a huge margin because they're getting some benefit in terms of some insurance. And I guess, like ultimately, with any sort of insurance, you got to think about who the beneficiary is. Like, who's the person that we're trying to protect? It's not just the people who have deposited their money, but it's actually the entire financial system that depends on the banking system. Well, the banking system effectively is the financial system, isn't it? Like they they yeah. own the yeah. and yeah. so. Um, and we have a situation in this country where we have some large banks, which are particularly important for the financial system. So any problems for those larger banks causes some significant economic disruption. And to protect against that, the government has imposed some, or the Reserve Bank is, is putting into effect some higher capital requirements for those banks so as to reduce the probability of their failure. And on to the probability of failure. Like that was the big concern that I had when I was watching this unfold in the United States was, and it, it, the concern lasted for only a short period of time until I kind of finally understood what the problem was. But I did have that immediate impulse that, oh my goodness, this is like the GFC, but now way worse. They've finally, the, the chickens have come home to roost and um, things are things are falling apart within the banking system, which we do type thing. So that thought did come across my mind, but then you got to like acknowledge the fact that the banks here in New Zealand are quite different. Yeah. And in your view, like, would you say that we should be concerned if this even got worse overseas? Do we even okay. need to get concerned here? There's no indication at this stage that there's any cause for panic in New Zealand. There was some concern raised by some parties that it might become difficult for New Zealand banks to raise funding and they're dependent on some funding in international markets not to the extent that they were prior to the global financial crisis. So prior to the global financial crisis, they were um, foreign funding was quite important for them and rolling that foreign funding over was quite important. And mm -hmm. in, the, in the, the time of the global financial crisis, there was a challenge in fact for New Zealand banks because they were not able to roll that funding over for the sorts of terms um, that they'd been able to previously. So where they'd previously been able to roll funding every 90 days, they might have been rolling funds every seven days or even on an overnight basis. What's changed since then is that the relative dependence on short-term foreign funding is much reduced. So that's much less of an issue for the New Zealand banking sector. However, the risk is that when there's concerns in US and international banking markets, um, banks may become less keen to lend to other banks and that this could um, cause some some drying up of funding for the New Zealand banking system accordingly. Now, there's no indication that that has in fact been a significant effect. So before, like post-GFC, the concern was there because of the source of funding that New Zealand banks needed to generate and it came from overseas, yep. foreign funding. But nowadays, there's a, what, a much stronger base of funding to draw upon here yep. in New Zealand? Right? The funding for New Zealand banks has become much less risky. They're generally making much more use of, well, they're making more use of New Zealand-based funding. They're generally getting funds from retail depositors rather than being as dependent on wholesale markets as they were mm -hmm. otherwise. They've also got making sure that some of the funds that they raise in wholesale markets are locked in for longer terms. You're listening in to the Everyday Investor podcast, where curious minds explore the unconventional side of mainstream investing. 
Your host, Darcy Ungaro, is pretty stoked that you're listening in, and he'd love to help you in a professional capacity. If you've never made any sort of formal plan at all around how you're going to achieve that which you desperately hope will happen, then how's it going to happen? Huh, think about it. If you really want to get to that place where you work because you want to, not because you have to, then do something about it. At least get a plan together and ideally get some advice. Reach out to the team that's been powering this podcast from day one. It's pretty cool, actually. Helping him helps him helps others better, just like he's helped you by creating a robot for you to listen to. Are you ready to build new wealth in the new world then? Strategy, insurance, KiwiSaver, mortgages. Check out Ungaro and & Co. and make a time for a free 15-minute phone call. It's your free phone call to get out of prison. How does that sound? Chat with Darcy today, though. He won't regret making this AI say this. Just click on the show notes. All righty. Do I get paid for this? If, if I'm hearing you correctly, then we don't really need to be worried because more money basically is local than it is from offshore. But if there was a contagion issue and, and there was a tightening of credit conditions globally, how does that, how does that look here in New Zealand? Does that mean that the, the portion that does come from overseas is now harder to get? Yep. And that could have the effect in due course of actually making it, making the banks much more cautious about lending. They, because of the challenges they would have in funding that, that lending. So that's the risk that might, that's the risks that it might arise. Okay. But considering we're like the New Zealand banks relative to how they have been, like probably since post GFC, especially from my perspective, anyway, it does feel like the conservatism has already ratcheted up a couple of notches. So it, am I correct in assuming that that provides like a little bit of a buffer? so that we don't really yeah. ever need yeah. to concern ourselves again? Yep, you can't absolutely forever eliminate risk, but the risk profiles have generally become less than they were 15 years ago. Okay. So, and that's also reflected some caution in lending. That's not, not necessarily all good because what it means to some extent is that all the banks are doing is housing lending and not necessarily doing anything much else. Well, yeah, and I wasn't going to ask you this, um, David, but just around that, like that was, I guess that's probably one of the biggest criticisms that a lot of people have probably expressed towards the banks here in New Zealand is that they're all, they're all into housing and they're happy to extend credit for that. But when it comes to small to medium-sized enterprise, where arguably that's where we need the credit to directly go, not via the conduit of housing, that's where we have the biggest problems. Do you, do you see that situation resolving itself at some stage? Like, do you think the banks will ever get themselves around businesses to the extent where they can lend directly to them? Banks do do some lending to, to small business, but the advantage of housing lending is that it's easier. The staff that do it don't need to be as skilled as for small business lending. It's less risky and it's generally more profitable. So that's why they dive into housing lending. Now, um, some banks make more of an effort in the business lending. Um, others are very much housing lending specialists. What role then does, does do banks play in New Zealand? So this is kind of just zooming out a little bit and just looking at the banking landscape or the economy in general. I've often kind of thought really closely about just how property lending kind of is inflationary because of the new credit creation that occurs. And I don't know if that's the correct way in your view to look at it, but would you agree with that? It makes it easier. I mean, the bank's willingness to lend for housing 
makes it easier for increased property prices to be supported. Yeah, that's partly reflective of a credit creation process, but basically every time a bank creates a bit of credit to make a housing loan, usually that housing loan is used to pay off somebody's some debt by somebody else. So you're actually getting some credit destruction occurring mm. at the other end of the big process. So we don't necessarily get huge amounts of credit creation going on no. out of that process by itself. But, well, in the short term, but but in the long term, I guess you still have the inflation that's occurring on top of that debt repayment, right? Yes, yes, yeah. And the willingness of banks to lend makes people feel a little less constrained in what they might pay for properties. And so we see property prices increasing accordingly. And what we often tend to see is we tend to see growth in housing lending and growth in, in property prices tracking each other to some extent. It's a bit hard to say which drives which. Yeah, that's right. It's kind of like a dog and a tail or chicken and an egg sort of situation, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I guess when when we have changes in, in the economic cycle, generally speaking, around this time, like we're kind of staring down the barrel of a recession well and truly, probably one of the most anticipated yep. recessions ever. And, and and we are seeing a slowdown in housing lending growth accordingly. Yeah, yep. that's right. So yep. not just the slowdown in that, but when when people sell their properties and they don't necessarily borrow again for another property, or if they do, they're borrowing to buy a lower value property. And I'm kind of starting to see that pick up a little bit. Is that the same as saying that credit is on balance being destroyed more than it's being created? And yeah. therefore, I guess what I'm getting at is, is there a um, negative spillover effect of that spiral happening yeah. where it sucks yeah. cash out of the economy. Yeah, it doesn't usually quite get to the stage of sucking cash out of the economy, but it certainly takes the pressure off the pump in terms sure. of blowing things up. That's good. That's a good way of putting it. So like thinking again around where we're at globally. So we have uh, like a global economic slowdown, potentially. We have a, a bipolar world starting to form and we have interest rates that keep on increasing to fight off inflation in the system. Um, I wonder where this goes. I wonder where it's going to stop. And I just think from a from a technology point of view, I just I'm, I'm quite fascinated by by where this goes. And I, I wonder if, from your perspective, you'd be happy you'd be happy to share any opinions you have on central bank issued digital currencies. Well, um, one of the big ideas, one in, in digital currencies in general is foreign exchange transfers. Um, we could have a wallet of digital currency, which is issued by the central bank rather than having, um, rather than relying on funds and accounts with private banks. Mm -hmm. The question is then, um, where would the private banks get the funds from to enable them to lend to people for housing? Um, if they got less funds and they lent less on housing, would that be a bad thing or a good thing? Um, there's a whole lot of things there, but I, I'm not, we don't, you're not actually yet sure whether the central bank digital currencies are going to be a go or anyway. And, but there are like, there's obviously going to be a few headwinds for retail banks, not just here in New Zealand, but around the world as smaller branches, smaller banks seem to be effectively being consolidated and turned into bigger, bigger banks. And maybe ultimately the central bank playing a larger role, perhaps with the yep. implementation of CBDCs. Yep. Yep. 
What we're what we're also seeing is the extent of regulation and the amount of technology required that, that banks need. One of the things that that's causing that that's causing changes there is that, that the efficient size for a bank has grown. seems to have grown quite substantially. Um, there was a time, fifteen years ago, where um, you didn't need to be particularly big to have a profitable bank. Now. Things have changed, I think, to some extent, and what we've got is the costs of technology and the costs of compliance with regulation relatively significantly more onerous for small banks. And that means that small banks are, to some extent, struggling with costs in that area, and that may be posing some, some challenges for them. Now, we haven't seen anything. We haven't seen anything too dramatic yet. But particularly, I guess, what you're going to see in the US is you're going to see some of the smaller local banks struggle there. Um, the banks in New Zealand are big by the contrast. Even the smallest banks in New Zealand are big by the contrast of the small local banks in the US. We've seen quite a lot of merging of small banks going on in Australia. This is likely to be all the pursuit of a more efficient operating scale within the banking sector. And I wonder also just with things like um, natural disasters, transition towards green energy, more more renewable energy and stuff like that, whether or not there's going to be more and more pressure for, for banks to consolidate so that they can roll out initiatives that are mutually beneficial for the government as well, right? Yep. Um, the costs of the actual branch networks, I suspect, are not that huge. Um, they've become, I mean, if you go back 50 years, um, branch networks were the be-all and end-all of banks, and that's where most of the cost lay. Nowadays, branch networks are a much smaller element of cost, but that doesn't mean to say that the banks aren't at the same time trying to shrink their branch networks as well. Most of the things that we, that people have really used branch networks for 50 years ago aren't required anymore. You no longer have lots of checks to take in a bank. Cash is relatively less important. There are alternative means of obtaining and dispersing cash. So the sorts of routine activities that used to occur in bank branches at one time are no longer applicable. Yeah, so the, and the whole, yeah, our need for a physical bank has now been replaced with the offers of a digital bank anyway, even though it's still yep. the same thing. It's just a, a different way that we're interacting and it's all digital yep. anyway. So yep. to a certain extent, the transition into a digital age has already occurred right underneath our noses. But I guess yep. if we were to look, say, what, three or four or five years into the future, are we going to see any bank branches at all? What do you think about that? Oh, yeah, I think we'll see some bank branches. My view has been that we've currently got about um, six, seven hundred bank branches in New Zealand, I think. In 10 years' time, that might be two to three hundred bank branches. Okay, so it's something, right? Well, it's, it's a fairly significant reduction, and it's a much more significant reduction, for example, than people have got their minds open for in countries okay. such as Australia. So Australia and, and a number of other markets internationally, people are still quite hung up on bank branches. So that'll probably take a maybe maybe the death of a generation before we can get, get over that one, I suspect, eh? Yeah, to some extent, though, yes. So speaking of banks, though, and just our attitude towards them, um, we all love to hate them, but they do perform a, a really critical function in our economy and therefore in our lives. Do you feel like the average everyday person either doesn't get how banks work or they just don't care? People's most important interaction with banks is, in fact, 
in general, um, paying and receiving money. And banks actually do that job reasonably straightforwardly. There have been some technological change, there's ongoing te te technical upgrades. We're going to see interbank settlement occurring at weekends before long, all of these sorts of things. And that's what people go for. Most people get most of that service for free. If you want to borrow or deposit, the bank's going to take a bit of a margin. That's how it's, that's how it's going to make some money. People don't really, and I don't, I don't think people understand much about banking, so they just sort of, it's a, banking is something which happens to them rather than something that they necessarily control or understand. I don't know why, but I, I feel quite convinced more and more that it's probably an area that we need to understand more of personally. And I think um, if, like when I try to explain it to my kids, for example, there's the easy explanation where you put money into the bank, the bank takes that from your savings account, and they're going to lend it out to somebody else who needs money. And that person's paying more interest to the bank than what you get. And the difference is basically going to the bank for them to operate. That's kind of like the simplest yep. way to explain banking, right? Yep. But yep. it's not the only way of explaining banking. And if, if there was a slightly more complex version of it, what would you say to that? Like, how would you explain <sighs> banking to someone who can kind of understand a bit more detail? Okay, I guess what banks are doing then is they're taking funds, which people often just maybe as a temporary repository for funds. And because they're taking funds from a lot of people, they can effectively be, used, be using those to lend people who want to borrow for longer term. So if I was to lend, if somebody was to ask me to lend to a small business, one of the complications would be that my funds would be tied up and I couldn't access to them. But if they go through a bank, the bank acting as a financial intermediary can provide both longer term and larger chunks of funding to the business than individual depositors would be willing to provide. So they're kind of collating and aggregating a whole bunch of different pots of money, knowing that not all of them will come and ask for that money back so they yep. can take that money, aggregate it, and then turn it into um, yep. an income stream by lending it out to somebody else. Yes. So that, that would be like the intermediation or the intermediary that's, that's, theory. That, right? that, is, that, that is acting as an intermediary, yes. Okay. What can you tell me about the credit creation theory then? Well, okay. Um, if you're sitting in a bank and somebody comes to you for a loan, you don't have to go and look in the vault and see if you've got the money there. In a large bank, there's going to be... Um, plenty of loans coming in there'll be other other payments being made in respect so there's cash coming in cash going out all the time and if you're making a loan that is small relative to the size of the bank it's not going to be a problem that's going to interfere with your day-to-day -day operations so if you're making a loan without checking you're actually creating credit but at the same time somebody else is probably coming in and paying a loan off so that's actually destroying credit. So mm -hmm. the amount of net credit creation is generally pretty small. If a mm -hmm. bank finds it is doing a large amount of net credit creation, it's either it's going to have to either slow the process down or engage in some other interventions so that it can, can maintain that rate of growth. If you went to one of the large four banks and wanted a loan of a million dollars, that's not going to be a problem because they've got that resource available to make a million dollar loan to you. If you wanted a loan of $10 billion, 
that would be a slightly bigger challenge. So that would not be so readily dealt with by a simple act of credit creation. Okay. Now, thinking about the Reserve Bank of New Zealand or a central bank of any country, really, you'd like to think, and I think it's probably good generally, that there's some independence between the government and the central bank. And again, we're going to a world where there probably needs to be a little bit more spending on infrastructure, or it seems like that's what's going to happen, especially when it comes to renewables and dealing with natural disasters, perhaps. Do you feel like the level of independence between central banks and governments will be something that's going to be, I guess, challenged and maybe eroded in the future, just out of necessity, if nothing else? I wouldn't say that that was a, necess- that was a necessity. I'm not sure that we've got any particular reason for supposing that things will change significantly in that regard. Governments, of course, will willingly get the idea that they should have more control over the central bank so that they can get the central bank to do more of what they want to do. And to some extent, for example, in New Zealand with economic policy over the last couple of years, there's been an attempt to say, well, look, the Reserve Bank's going to deal with the economic policy issues, therefore the government can can do what it likes without regard to that to some extent. So central banks can to some extent push against government economic action, which and some governments will object to central banks pushing against it and will try and get things changed accordingly. But the advantage of having an independent central bank is that they can focus on the economic issues rather than being beholden to the, the sorts of political issues that may drive governments. Mm-hmm. And in some countries that works, in other countries it doesn't work quite so well. A classic okay. example of that is Turkey, where the president insists that interest rates must be reduced as inflation roars away and as the balance of payments disappears into a great big hole. I guess, I don't know, Like I kind of wonder in New Zealand, because we're so strong, so secure, so safe, so free from corrupt, corruption, we... I guess, if anything, we're probably at risk of being lured into a false sense of security by assuming Turkey could never happen here or bank collapses could never really happen here for all these reasons. There is, yeah, yeah. There are risks of that type that don't keep ourselves alert to the to the potentially negative outcomes. But in fact, what we're seeing is generally relatively prudent behavior. Um, would, would you have any concerns, though, David, like thinking about what's happening in the world right now, including war, how the US dollar is kind of being challenged? Would you have any concerns around the banking system? I don't have any, I don't have any particular worries about the New Zealand banking system or the Australian banking system. I don't think the US banking system is at any great risk. There have been some problem banks, but that will does something that does occur from time to time in the US, and they have systems for dealing with it to some extent don't always work quite as well as they could do but that's always a problem with dealing with bank with banks that get into strife one of the risks is that the you effectively wind up with a taxpayer underwriting of you know, of imprudent behavior by banks mm-hmm. socialize the losses and privatize the profits right yes yes and and so on, on profits, I think it, everyone loves to hate banks. Everyone is, looks at profits almost as an evil these days and, and not necessarily as, as a reward for taking risk or deploying capital. Um, that aside, yep. though, you can't change the fact that some people look at the banks in, in New Zealand, um, especially because they're foreign owned, the majority of them, and they do make significant profits. What, like, what's, what's your view on that? And I, I know that... Um, you know, we have to take a pretty neutral look at these sorts of things. Would you suggest that 
we we get served pretty well by the banks here in New Zealand and would you say that they're they're about right in terms of the amount of profit they're taking I've been a little bit surprised and perhaps a little bit concerned by the widening of some of the margins that has occurred over the last 12 months or so I suspect however that that is not a permanent state of affairs I suspect they're going to wind up being a little less profitable in the coming mm. years. We get that from looking at the factors that have actually driven some of the, the profitability. To some extent, we've seen banks, banks grabbing opportunities as interest rates have gone up to widen a few margins here and there. That's been helped by the fact that people have been going for core deposits rather than term deposits. That's probably given away one or two percent of interest paid to deposits. Can you clarify that? Sorry, David, um, core deposits. So what's happened? We've seen um, the amount of money on term deposit has not grown in the way core deposits have grown. So the proportion of money on core deposits has increased. Core yeah. deposits are lower yielding than term deposits. So that has kept, allowed banks to, to interest costs to be lower than they might be otherwise. And that has widened their interest margins to some extent. So that's one factor that is actually one factor that's actually driven things. Where there's also been, I think, some good luck for the banks. Um, they expected to make credit losses during the pandemic, which didn't actually eventuate to anything like the extent expected. And even now, I don't think they're going to get big losses. So I think they've been relatively lucky. But if we went back three years, I don't know they would have that we would have predicted that they would have been as fortunate as they have turned out to be. And in yeah. fact, in the early stages of the pandemic, we saw their interest margins actually squeeze down significantly. Um, right. So they've recovered. But I think that as interest rates stabilize, I think that um, their interest margins will narrow again. Yes. It, like it's a fascinating time. I, I sit here and I, I do some work in the mortgage advice space and facilitating mortgages for some of my clients and seeing some of the offers, especially over a month ago or so, it just just blown me away. Especially the fact that you, they, being a borrower, will generate more revenue in terms of a cash payment than what a mortgage advisor gets by facilitating the whole thing. And so it tells me that there's obviously there's some money to be made right now. But what you're saying is that hey, maybe it's a function of slightly higher interest rates. It's an environment where they are also anticipating probably lower profits in the future. So they've been trying to get their reserves up potentially and they fared better than what they expected during the pandemic. Yeah, I think when interest rates are moving relatively rapidly, it's easier to be less transparent with your interest rates. So you can be particular areas where interest rates are inclined not to be transparent are some of the at call savings accounts, for example. A couple of hundred billion in at call savings accounts. Now, if that got reduced by 50 billion and the banks had to pay an extra 1% on that, that would undermine some of the uh, growth in profit that they've been achieving. Gotcha. Okay. So that really is a big piece then, isn't it? It's, it's real. And that's kind of driven by customer behavior as well. Like if, if yeah. people don't use term deposits so much yeah. and they're putting it into savings vehicles that don't penalize them yeah. if they well, withdraw well, it. And, and part of that, part of the reason for that is that back in 2020, term deposits weren't paying anything very much at all. Mm. So people just went into at call accounts. Gotcha. 
That's right. Yeah. And that kind of teaches people that that's all they do. But right now, like we're, yeah. we're recording this in March, uh, sorry, April 2020, and uh, term deposit rates are somewhere in the mid to low fives across the yeah. range, right? Yeah. So yeah. that's quite yeah. a significant bump up in terms of what you can get. Yet in the on-call savings accounts, it's significant. I don't know what they are, but significantly less, presumably. So yeah. so I guess the the profits is, is not necessarily a bad thing, but it is a symptom of the the times that we're currently in and that might yep. get compressed in the future. Yep. Yep. Do you feel it's warranted then to get commerce commission involved doing banking reviews and stuff like that? Or do you think that's a little bit over the top? I'm probably reluctant to give too much of a sure. view on that. Now I certainly want to see the banks being fair. I don't rush to the assumption that they're being unfair. But the best way of assessing the, their fairness is to have some proper investigation. So that's not necessarily a bad thing. And I think the banks have, in fact, said, well, look, rather than grizzling and moaning, have a look. Do some proper analysis of their numbers. That shouldn't be a bad thing. On the other hand, I'm not sure that it's actually going to change anything very much. No, because like like we've just discussed, it's kind of, it's kind of needed. It's, it's like a function of every now and then they're going to be a lot more profitable, right? Yes, yes. So it may be a matter of cost for, for not much gain. But on the other hand, it doesn't generally do any harm to increase the amount of transparency around these issues, it gets rid of some of the uncertainty, it gets rid of some of the resentment that might otherwise arise, and so on. Yes. Okay. And what, lastly, maybe one of the other uh, trends that's going on right now, or not necessarily a trend, but a trend to talk about it and hope that it actually happens potentially, depending on who you are, is open banking. And even simple things like having your bank account number as being portable so that you could move it to another bank if you wanted to with a lot less friction, um, that probably is quite appealing. And it's certainly appealing from the perspective of innovation as well in the fintech space. Do you have any views around open banking? Do you kind of, would you like to see that come to, come to fruition? It will facilitate greater competition. It will facilitate greater, better access to lending for people. Whether the changes are going to be huge in consequence, I don't know. Some of the changes that gets made, you talk about a solution in terms of a problem. Um, open banking is better than that, but, but I mean, it's not necessarily going to make a huge difference. But the ability to uh, access funding more easily and more openly is probably a good thing. Um, because it's, it perhaps reduces the opportunity for fringe operators who rely on um, people not understanding what they're doing right. or what's being done to them. Okay, well, this is like this has been a, a great chat. I think I've I've got my head around this a lot more in terms of the the banking scene here in New Zealand. Like, and long and the short of it is that hey, with with what's happening overseas, based on what we know right now, you're not concerned. However, you'll reserve the opportunity to change your mind if things kind of get really nasty. So yep. just to finish up on what would be really nasty, like if we were to be worried about our banks in New Zealand, what would be what, would, what should we be looking for? OK, I think we'd be worried if one of the seriously big US banks got into trouble. We might be more worried if there were significant bank failures in parts of the world other than the, the US. At this stage, I'm happy to look at Credit Suisse as a one-off. Deutsche Bank is in a weaker position, but again, I don't think that's as crucial as it would have been. 
But if we saw that starting to have other other impacts in European markets, then I guess we'd be more concerned. If we saw a financial blow up and blow up in China, that might get us a bit worried. So we don't want to rule those things out, but I don't see any need to be panicking in the short run. Sure. Okay. So really long and short of it is that if that contagion spread outside of the US or if it was larger institutions within the US, then that's when you probably want to start taking a little bit closer attention. But if, if things yeah. kind of just yeah. keep on bubbling along as they are, it's probably yeah. no cause for concern. Yeah. Or if some events emerged somewhere else in the world, which actually indicated a problem. And I guess one of the concerns is if one of the concerns is with the, the property market in China, for example, that led to difficulties for some of the big Chinese banks then I guess we'd, we'd be starting to look a bit more carefully at the state of the global financial system. But it isn't clear to me that, that a problem for the Chinese banking system would have a, a necessarily particularly immediate or direct impact on this country. Mm. Well, especially as they seem to be trying their best um, or are being forced to disconnect to the, to the US system more and more, either by yep. joining alliances with the other BRICS nations or, or otherwise. So I guess time will tell. Yeah, that's awesome. All right, David, well, I really appreciate your time. So David Tripe, Professor of Banking Studies at uh, the School of Economics and Finance at Massey University, thanks for joining me today. Thank you. Good to talk right. to you. Have Bye a day. Cheers. Thanks for listening into the Everyday Investor Podcast. Like what you've heard, but you want more? Make sure that you've subscribed to our YouTube channel and subscribe to the Everyday Investor newsletter too. The links for everything are found in the show notes that you can access easily by swiping or tapping over the cover art in your podcast player. If you received value in some way, I'd love it if you could take the time to write a review wherever you listen to podcasts, share it with a friend, or think of our show partners where appropriate. Easy Crypto, the safe and easy way to buy and sell crypto in New Zealand. Guerrilla Technology, increasing business success through innovative and strategic IT solutions. And Garon Co, financial advice, financial advice for everyday people building everyday wealth. Remember, some investments or strategies discussed on these episodes may result in financial loss. Be sure to do your own research and ideally seek qualified advice of your own before making investment decisions. Hope you enjoyed today's episode and we'll catch you next time around.